Now we're going to look at the endocrine system, the, an overview, a little discussion on the endocrine system. Now I want to ask you again, because I mentioned we've, as I said to you, we repeat ourselves a lot. That's because we don't know very much and we have to tell you the same thing again and again. But we talked about the endocrine, and that's one of the ways that cells speak with each other, isn't that right? Or communicate with each other. And we said that in order for a, a one gland to speak to another gland or communicate with another gland, which is far away from it, it will send its messenger via the a gland, via the blood, and then send its message distantly, and it will find its way into a receptor, remember? Like the lock and the key. Now, I want to ask you a few questions very quickly so we can, we've only got a few minutes, so we're going to work through it. Tell me some endocrine organs that you know of or systems. Anybody? Lymph nodes. You know, in the broader sense today, almost everything is an endocrine gland. Now, lymph nodes, because what? Reproduction? Yeah, definitely. But to come back to your point, you'll see in the lectures, we talk about classical description and the broader description. When the classical description of endocrine systems was made up, it was, you know, they knew about sexual or reproductive. That was one system, male and female, hormones and so on. Somebody, I think, uh, Phelan, you mentioned thyroid, the thyroid gland. Behind the thyroid, there are what are called the parathyroid glands, which work with the calcium and the phosphate. Then in the middle of the brain, there's a little gland called the pituitary gland, right? The conductor, well done. And it sends out all the messengers uh, of the um, hormones to be stimulated, the stimulating hormones or the releasing hormones. And then there are the... Exactly, the suprarenal glands, the adrenal glands that sit on top of the kidneys like a little cap, the adrenal glands. Um, in the pancreas, we have the islets of Langerhans, which produce what hormones? Insulin, right. And also glucagon. So there are a number of these, and, and then it was found that the kidney produces hormones. It produces a hormone which uh, helps the blood pressure to go up. It, no, it's not adrenaline. It's aldosterone. Which, uh, and renin. Renin, particularly. Re not renin, renin. Renin. And then it also produces another hormone, which was discovered when they found out that people who were in chronic kidney failure became very pale. I don't know if you've seen people who are on kidney failure who are on dialysis. They're very, very pale. And that's because the kidney produces a substance which stimulates the bone marrow, and it's called erythropoietin, and it stimulates the bone marrow to make red cells. Now, interestingly, that has been genetically engineered and, and made and manufactured, and when you inject that into a renal failure patient, they push the hemoglobin up. So they begin to look pink and well. But they run into another problem. The problem is this, that when the cell counts go up 
and they're on the machines getting dialyzed, the machines tend to, tend to clod up. So you have to walk this very fine balance. So whereas you and I hopefully have a hemoglobin of about 13, 14, 15, uh, you wouldn't really want your renal failure patient to go above 9 or 9.5. So the kidney produces. Then you said the lymph glands. Well, all those cells which Dr. Handyside was talking about, the T cells, the lymphocytes, the granulocytes, these cells produce what are called cytokines. Cytokines are chemicals. Cyto means cell. So cytokines are produced by the cells, and the cells then can either speak to the cell next to it or communicate next to it, or with the cell distantly. And so we see that um, there. I, somebody's messing with us because I, I fiddled with the lights a little earlier. Yeah. Yeah. So these these cells speak to each other. So strictly speaking, yes, the lymph uh, or the uh, lymphatic cells. The lymphocytes are part of the endocrine system. But there's a classical endocrine system. And the classic endocrine system basically is the pituitary, the thyroid, parathyroids, um, and the adrenals, the pancreas, uh, genitourinary system, uh, the, uh, the reproductive system, the gonads. So those are the classic hormonal uh, producers and systems. Now that we've got that straight, and we, we also remember, and just to remind you that um, one of the definitions as well of a, an endocrine gland is that its chemical is sent out into the blood. The blood is the method of transport. So into the bloodstream, and then it, it goes to its target organ, switches it on, and then will be switched off when the work is done that needs to be done. Then there's another very important thing, and I think today is a very good day to share that with you. The negative feedback system. Negative feedback system. I've noticed that there are coats. Our friend rushed out of this room and brought back a lovely orange jersey or top or covering, a coat, a shawl because she was cold in this room. You see, that is a feedback. She's giving us feedback about the temperature. <laughs> and we got it. So what happens is normally we will set, as I said the other day, the thermostat to a certain level. And then when the temperature reaches that level, the air conditioner will switch off. And when the temperature rises above it, and the air conditioner comes back on to cool it down. So it's continually feeding back onto the what we call the ambient or surrounding temperature. Now that's exactly the way hormones work. The thyroid produces thyroxine. Thyroxine is a crucial hormone in the energy metabolism of the body. But for thyroxine, for the thyroid gland to work, it needs to be stimulated by the, the uh, pituitary gland, which releases thyroid-stimulating hormone. 
So the, the pituitary sends out this messenger. It sends a text message. How's that? Sends out a text. The text is TSH. TSH comes down, stimulates the thyroid. The thyroid gets to work, makes the thyroid hormone, pushes that into the bloodstream, goes out to the body and does its work. But have you thought why it doesn't keep on producing more and more and more and more thyroid hormones? Because as the thyroid hormone level rises in the blood, the pituitary gland has special cells which monitor that, and then they get switched off when the level gets to the right amount. The pituitary stops sending the text message. No more text until it drops again. So all the time there is this wonderful mechanism and it's called negative feedback. It's the feedback of the level of the hormone of the, or the substance which is being measured or which is being used at that point, like thyroid hormone. As it measures that, it feeds back onto the pituitary gland and switches off the thyroid. Isn't that amazing? It's absolute, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, similarly, we'll take the pancreas, for example. Inside the pancreas, there are little groups of cells called the islets of Langerhans, the islands of Langerhans. And they have special cells which produce insulin, which decreases the blood sugar, and produces glucagon, which in certain instances pushes up the blood sugar. And when you've had a meal like you had about two hours ago, now you've forgotten that you ate, you're already thinking of what you're going to eat in about an hour and a half's time. So, when you eat, the body absorbs, breaks down the carbohydrates and so on, and the sugar level, it absorbs the sugars, the simplest forms, into the blood, and this then gets distributed to the various places it needs to go under the influence of insulin. Insulin results in the moving of glucose into the cells. Well, how do we know? Now, as the blood sugar drops, the insulin level drops. As the blood sugar level goes up, what do you think happens to the insulin level? It goes up. And so there's a continuous following on the negative feedback because as the blood flows through the pancreas, the cells monitor and measure how much insulin needs to be let into the system. Isn't that amazing? Now, you're understanding a few things which are very crucial to what our discussion is mainly going to talk about today, and that is some of the endocrine diseases. You know, we can spend time, and I can take you through every single um, endocrine organ, and we can talk about functions, and we can talk about diseases. We really don't have the time to do that. But there are some very, very important diseases which you need to know about as you work in your church being a center for the community's health. And one of them is, we're talking about hormones and endocrines. Which one would you say it is? 
which disease is crucially important for you to know about in your community. We're in North America and uh, diabetes. What's it like in Colombia, diabetes? Dominican? Big. A lot of it? You're not sure. In a population of? And mulches incremento. It's going up in big amounts. It's going to get more and more. Okay, so diabetes, a growing problem. There are two types of diabetes, actually, three types, three main types. Number one, doctors have a very innovative way of labeling their diseases. Imaginative and very difficult to remember. The first one is called type 1 diabetes. Then there's type 2 diabetes. <laughs> and then there's gestational diabetes. Again, that's in women who are pregnant, who then develop uh, an intolerance to, their, to sugar, to carbohydrates. Right. Type 1 diabetes is the less common one. And one of the important reasons to talk about diabetes in general, it's the commonest cause of blindness in the world. The commonest cause of kidney failure in the world. So it's a very significant disease. It's a very, very important component and risk factor for heart disease for arterial disease, strokes, eye issues, including blindness, as I mentioned. All of them. Type 3 is usually a more transient um, condition, but it can move into a permanent state. Type 1 diabetes is the one which used to be called juvenile onset meaning that it would start in the younger age groups. Um, I'll never forget the very first, the, the youngest I've ever diagnosed, it was in a, an infant under the age of a year. Child was not well and got recurrent kidney, um, bladder infections. And uh, we were out in the, in the boonies. And uh, I men eventually managed to get a not only a dex, I got, I got a urine sample, and from babies, that was difficult. But I learned that you got a special bag, and she was a female. So we got a sample of urine and stuck the dextro sticks in, I mean the urine sticks, and surprise, surprise, this child had diabetes, type 1. And type 1 diabetes is what we call an autoimmune disease. Auto means that the body develops an immunity to itself, like automobile, something which goes by itself. Autoimmune, the uh, body develops, it, it fails to recognize that the body is itself. So it starts to destroy certain portions of its own tissue. And this focuses on the insulin-producing cells 
of the islets of Langerhans. And so they are destroyed at an early age and they have what is called an absolute lack of insulin because the factory is closed down, broken and destroyed. So they need replacement of insulin right from the word go. As soon as they're diagnosed, they need replacement of insulin. If you don't give them insulin, they land up with a lot of problems. They go into comas. They, uh, they can die in that situation. It's called a diabetic ketoacidosis. They become dehydrated. Of course, all these complications we've talked about, even when they are getting their insulin injections, you can virtually set your watch or your calendar from the start of the disease to the time when they start going into kidney failure. It's probably about 30 years. 30, now it's a little longer because of better control, better understanding of the storage of insulin, etc. But it's a disease which is inexorable. It continues regardless, and um, it's a problem. That's type 1. So people who are on type 1 diabetes need replacement of insulin from the get-go. That has implications for parts of the world where it sometimes is difficult to store insulin. Insulin is a protein, um, and it needs to be stored in the appropriately low temperatures. So in certain parts of the world where it's very hot and the insulin is exposed to heat, it undergoes what we call a denaturing. Denaturing means that it's no longer as effective. So these are all problems related and where a church can make a major difference in helping people to understand that not only the way it, insulin should be stored, but sometimes to make that facility available in the communities they find themselves. Type 1 diabetes. Type 2 diabetes, we have seen in the United States probably in the last 20 years an 800 percent increase in type 2 diabetes. When Dr. Handysides and I went to medical school and were young doctors, which is probably just about 15 years ago, no that's not true, <laughs> we did not see type 2 diabetes in individuals under the age of 55. In fact, probably 60, we did not see it. Isn't that right? It was called maturity onset diabetes. Diabetes today, type 2, is presenting into the pediatrician's office in adolescence. It's a huge problem. And it's a huge problem. And it's a growing problem. Now, the type 2 diabetes individual, what are the causes? Just to focus back for a minute and rewind to type 1. Type 1, there may be a hereditary component to it, but generally it is more, as I said, on the autoimmune basis. There may be an association in children who are fed uh, milk, cow's milk, under the age of one year. Breast is best. They should have breast milk, but there is an association. There may be a, a small genetic component. The rest is what we call idiopathic. In type 2, which we don't, means we don't know the reason, type 2 diabetes, one of the most predominant relationships is 
obesity, along with inactivity. Those are the two major contributing factors. And as the population growth is increasing, and the, the girth, the population girth is growing, and we saw figures the other evening, I think Mark Finley was talking about the figures, Al Reese was talking about the figures, that's right. That we're looking at 50% um, of the North American population is overweight, at least. 30% is hitting the obesity. And we're seeing that in children. You, some of you saw the slides of the, the very fat kids. Seeing a lot of that. Do these people have insulin? Are they producing insulin? So what's the problem? They in fact have more insulin, but they are resistant to it. The insulin cannot do the work that it needs to do. Now, insulin, not only does it work on the, uh, on the metabolic process of moving sugar into the cells, it is also what we call a growth factor. And a growth factor is something, it's, it's a hormone, which stimulates cells to undergo change. Now, one of the ways it manifests in diabetes is if you look into the eye of a diabetic individual, you'll see that their blood vessels begin to undergo proliferation. They grow. They, they become, they, they, they are stimulated to form new blood vessels in the eye. Sometimes those blood vessels are abnormal in that they form little blowouts or aneurysms as well. Sometimes that bleeds into the retina. And with all of this process going on, people begin to go blind. They lose their vision. That's one of the examples of the growth factor effect of insulin. There's another as sinister component, because I can think of few things that would be worse than being blind. But another component is that obesity is associated with an increased amount of malignancy. We heard about neoplasia today. So insulin, when it's floating around unused, being produced in excess because the sugars remain high despite the increased insulin and the negative feedback is not working properly, so more insulin is produced, it becomes a growth factor and a stimulus for possibly certain cancers. And so we find that not only do we find it in a, in a cancer new growth that occurs, but also the changes that occur in arteries. So along with the eye problems, the possible issues related to cancer problems, we find that in diabetes type 1 and type 2, there is a significant metabolic problem related to the diseases of the arteries both the small arteries and the large arteries. Now, in type 2 diabetes, not uncommonly, they will present with small vessel disease. What is a small vessel? The blood vessels start out from the large aorta, which comes out of the heart and goes down to the rest of the body, 
with all the branches that come off. There are plenty of branches to the kidneys and to other organs as we go down up into the neck. From the main blood vessel that comes out of the heart, they then go into what are called arteries. And then they, these have got fairly muscular walls. They then break down into arterioles, which have even thicker walls. So if you were to cut them in half, you're looking at that. Sorry. Whereas this one, if you cut it in half, these, and then you get into the little capillaries, which are very small blood vessels. And if you look at those, you're seeing almost single-celled blood vessel walls. Those are the, wall, the cells of the lining. In diabetes, both type 2 and type 1, you can get large vessel disease here in the aorta. You can get it in the arteries. You can get it in the arterioles. But it not uncommonly is very common in this area, in the smaller vessels. So they will, they will present with uh, problems with the circulation of the feet, of the toes. But they may, have, they may have very palpable, very easily felt pulses here on the foot but they will be presenting with problems in their more peripheral circulation, and they will present with injuries, particularly when they don't have adequate care of their nails. So individuals who have diabetes have to have meticulous care. Toenails need to be cut carefully. Shoes need to be fitting correctly. All of those things need to be taken care of, because as, as we mentioned to you, small vessel disease in the feet, in the kidneys, they get a specific, very significant um, disorder with disease of these arterioles in the kidneys called Kimmel-Steele-Wilson disease, that in the eye as well. And then um, in uh, the blood vessels around the heart and the blood vessels of the brain. So it's a, an overall vasculopathy, which means it's a disease of all the conduits that carry blood to the body. Not only does it affect the blood vessels, which is the entire vascular tree, it affects the nerves. When there's an increased amount of glucose or sugar, which is uncared for, it damages the nerves, damages the nerves of the eye, damages the nerves of the limbs and of the, of the feet. And often diabetic individuals have what we call a peripheral neuropathy. Now that may even present with a, an eye that becomes lame. It can present with people who say, you know, doc, I've got, I don't feel my feet anymore. Pins and needles in my feet. I recently saw a patient who I used to look after years ago who's got a peripheral neuropathy. Went on the treadmill, very naughty guy. Not because he went on the treadmill, but because he hasn't been doing it for a long time. He's got two big stents in his heart, had a major heart attack three years ago, and you know now and again does some exercise. Went on the treadmill with his peripheral neuropathy, he's got a Charcot's foot. And so he went on the treadmill and didn't feel his feet. So he's pounding away on the treadmill, 
He's been in plaster cast now for the last six weeks. Broke his foot. That's because of the peripheral neuropathy. The nerves don't function properly. We've talked about the kidney. They go into kidney failure. They need to have dialysis. They also have a propensity for infections. Because of the increased glucose, if you, if you put leukocytes, if you put white cells, as Dr. Handysides was showing you the different kinds of uh, cells in the immune system, if you take the polymorphonuclear leukocytes and you bathe them in an increased amount of glucose, those cells which normally would surround the enemy and engulf the bacteria and kill it, they become lazy. We call them the lazy leukocytes. They, you know, like you guys are at um, five minutes to four in the afternoon. You know, you kind of are struggling to stay awake. <laughs> and that's probably because you don't have enough sugar. So it affects almost every system of the body. They then also get a neuropathy surrounding the gastrointestinal tract. So as it develops further, they develop vomiting. They develop what we call gastroparesis. So it's not a nice disease. Then there's the condition of diabetes related to pregnancy. Now, pregnancy is a parasitic condition. Because you have this dear little baby who is living on board, is contributing very little to the well-being of the mother, maybe a few hormones here and there, and mentally to the well-being, but is taking the iron and taking the nutrients, etc. And sometimes they develop the insulin resistance as well, particularly when it's related they have an increase in weight. That's why the obstetricians are forever watching the weight of the, the, the expectant mother to make sure that they don't gain weight, they don't get all these problems. Very often, it's a fully reversible condition. Baby's born, everybody's happy, the weight comes down of the mother. Often those babies are big babies. I saw on the news yesterday morning, did any of you see that on the news? that uh, a woman gave birth to a 12.9 pound baby and the news uh, anchor said not even with a, without an injection, without an epidural and without an operation. Ah, she said. <laughs> huh? An elephant. And apparently, it's her second baby that's that, that, that's, that's that size. She was quite a plumpish lady. And I thought to myself, I wonder what your blood sugars are. Now, often, those individuals, the blood sugar will come down nicely, and they'll be fine after the delivery. But they need to be watched. Because a significant percentage of them develop diabetes later on in life. It's like people who, uh, women who during their pregnancy have high blood pressure, and once the baby's born, the blood pressure comes down, but they need to be observed as well because a significant number of them develop high blood pressure later. So, briefly, you understand there are how many types, main types of diabetes? What are they called? 
Type 1, type 2, and gestational, correct. Type 1 is, has insulin or not? No insulin. Type 2? Too much. Type th uh, gestational one? During pregnancy and can reverse. Right. What are the complications of diabetes? Blindness. Amputations, absolutely. Commonest cause of amputations? Neuropathy, heart attack, kidney failure. Okay, you got it all. Arterial disease, peripheral vascular disease, absolutely right. Which would be the same thing. So what do we do about this? What do we do about it? We've just been at lunchtime to a school. It's an Adventist school, and we are so proud of this school. They've got a school with a gardener, and the gardener is a volunteer. He's a fireman who works four days a week for the fire department and seven days a week for the church school. I mean, he's doing a fantastic job. Teach the children how to grow vegetables, how to pickle the cauliflower, how to cook the food, how to make jam out of their strawberries. He's showing them, you know, they've got a special food laboratory. They go in and they do the preparation of food. They learn how to plant the stuff in straight lines. They've got a chef from a local restaurant who comes in once a week and teaches them cooking. They've got a relationship with Whole Foods who donates every week at least $400 worth of fresh groceries to the school. And we looked at this and we thought, this is not only teaching the children how things work from ground to table, but it teaches them the habits of good eating and to avoid the junk foods. If you look, and I'm not encouraging you to do this, but you, all of you look at TV and uh, you, none of you are going to tell me how much and you don't have to. It's none of my business. But you watch while you're here in the hotel and you look at the advertisements that come on. Fast foods, junk foods, the big burgers, salt, life insurance, medical products, you know, medications, and... Um, motor cars. Those are the majority of things which are, which are advertised on CNN, for example. What are the problems with diabetes? People eat too much. They eat junk food. They need medication as a result of that. And because of their motor cars, they don't exercise. People don't walk. They don't exercise. They become gluttonous. They eat too much. They are slothful. They are allergic to movement. And so we've got all of the problems that lead to diabetes. What are we going to do about it in our communities? When we looked at that garden and the way that they were teaching the children how to make good food and, and teaching them the value of working in the garden, of exercise, they've got a gym, they've got playing fields, Surely our churches should be community health centers where we teach people about the value of nutrition, of exercise. We start walking clubs. 
I walked along, we walk every morning, and I walked across the highway and came to a church called St. Peter's Church, a great church, St. Peter, on this rock. And St. Peter's Church, as you walk by it, you'll see there's a beautiful table. It's a metal one, pretty solid, with some lovely trees planted around it and said, this is here for your enjoyment to sit down and be blessed as you enjoy the nature of God. I looked at this and I took pictures of it and I thought, shouldn't every Adventist church have that kind of thing? A garden of repose right next to a walking trail. How wonderful. Well, not every church can do that. I realize that. Our home church can. Our home church is ideally situated to do that. And when I get back, we're going to work on their case. I took photographs. I'm going to send them to the, to the health group and to the pastor. How are we going to make a difference? Purely by preaching, purely by teaching, or getting out into our community. People have been asking about materials. You're going to get at the end of the course, you're going to get the foundations, you're going to get celebrations, you're going to get charters. And on the charters, for example, charters has got a whole set of lectures on diabetes. And it tells you, you can, you can it's complicated, but it's there. But you can, you can get that and you can bring in, you can advertise to your community and do it once a month, over eight months. And then you do what Dr. Handyside was talking to you about, focus around a meal. Who of you does not enjoy eating? Eating is a wonderful pastime. You get people in, you give them a lecture, you get one of your health professionals, you get a nurse, you get a doctor, you get someone who can follow the talk sensibly, you give the talk, you then say, we're going to now give you some nice vegetarian food to eat, share it with them, you keep them for two hours talk is done, the food is ready, they come, they learn, they eat, they go. You do it once a month. Within eight months, you've covered diabetes. Another eight months, you cover heart disease. Another eight months, you cover cancer. So every month, people begin to realize this church is a community health center. It's unthreatening. You make sure people mingle with them. We went to do one for a group. We arrive. Mrs. Handysides, who is a shy lady. She's not shy when she tells me what to do. I don't know what she does with her husband. But, <laughs> but she noticed that people were not talking to the visitors. So she went along and she, it wasn't our church. She went and made friends. How are you? Come, come and sit with us. Come. And they, they sat on and had a conversation. Those people enjoyed it. What are we telling you? You take something like the endocrine system with the problems that come out of the diseases related to it, and you can make a difference in your community with no strings attached. So that people ultimately come and say, you know what? Those people... They care about us. Last little story. Dr. Giordano, who works with the AIDS ministry, 
comes from Argentina and wanted to go back. He wasn't born an Adventist. Heard there was an Adventist church right in the little town where he grew up. And so he went back, wanted to see the church. So he asked around, is there a church here in the town? And they said they told him, on the village square, that's where the church is. So he went and he looked around and he couldn't see. He looked for the sign, looked for the three angels, couldn't see it. Eventually he went to one of the shop owners and said, can you tell me, is there a church here that comes together on a Saturday? Ah, said the shop owner. Yes. There's a group of people who come here every Saturday morning. They come, they sing, and they go. They come, they sing, and they go. What happens in your church each week? Do we come, sing, eat, go? Or is our church relevant in our community? May God bless you as you go back to where you came from and you take with you an enthusiastic mission to make a difference in the communities where you live. God bless you. This media was produced by Audioverse for the NAD Health Summit. If you would like to learn more about the NAD Health Summit, please visit www.nadhealthsummit.com or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.